Check. 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 I am Dumbledore. No, you're not. Does that make me Grindelwald? Are we gay for each other? Yeah, but we've never consummated the, uh, the sentiment, you know what I mean? Gabe. Hey, man. Guess, guess what? What? Welcome. To, Welcome. To our 150th episode. Is that really what it is? Yeah. Wow. I can't believe it's been one and a half hundred episodes. <laughs> What a way to put it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense at all. But we've made it. We're here. The big 150. One, 1. 1.5 times 100. <laughs> <laughs> Do you Boy, have any man. feelings? I am over, well, overcome with emotion. <laughs> I don't know what to say. You know, thank you. I'd like to thank everyone for being here. All the listeners. The for <laughs> Listener. You know who you are, listener. <laughs> no. Yeah. I can't even, looking back on it, it's been, yeah, it's been a ride. Two and a half, two years, two years, yeah. Just, it feels like just yesterday we were doing episode 100, our Dune podcast. It actually does, that's crazy. The last it, 50, I think. Because it was what, like in November so? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, the last 50 have gone fast. Which is funny, because we haven't, we, we were, must have recorded a lot up until the Oscars, and then like, we slowed down a little bit because of. The bubble cut. Emotions, <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say because Coda yeah. kind of uh, soured. obliterated. Soured the taste. <laughs> the will to live. <laughs> soured the palate. I hate film and television now. But I thought, what better way to do our 150th episode than with this film that we both loved so much that we did something we've never done before, which is waited to think about it and let it sit with us for a few days before we actually recorded. Yeah. Usually we just record al- like almost immediately after we get back. We've done it with Spider-Man, Batman, uh, any other indie film. But with this one, we were like, wow, that was so profound and so well done. We need to think think about it, do some research, and come back to it in a couple of days. Yeah. I've seen it a second time in that time. Yeah. In that span of time. What? movie are we doing today we're talking about everything everything, everywhere everywhere, all at once all at once and what an appropriate title really by the end of the movie you're like yeah that was it (laughs) that had everything everywhere so let's talk about it this movie breaks filmmaking for me it also breaks the hard coated exterior of gabe my my breaks you down my outer core (laughs) or wait that doesn't make sense my my outer shell i'm like a truffle there's the outer shell and then that that delicious nougaty center that creamy interior i love nougat it is good it's yummy i don't have it enough anyway Yeah, this movie uh, was incredible. It's probably going to end up being my favorite movie of the year, and that's tough to say in April. Yeah. But we both walked out of it. Gabe was uh, dumbfounded and speechless. I was shell-shocked. Yeah, for pretty much an hour after we watched it. And then I turned to him and I said, 
There's a lot of good stuff coming out this year, but I can't imagine any of those movies being better than this movie. Even in the next three to four months, there's crazy stuff coming out. But I'm just like, and for so many reasons, this movie has left me uh, in in amazement uh, in a way that I don't think has happened for me, uh, not including like Denis blockbusters. This feeling hasn't happened to me in a long time. Yep, I agree. I am not sure if I said it to you, but I I have been saying that same thing. I have not felt this way about a movie in at least 10 to 15 years. That's a long time. And I can't even remember the last time I felt it, to be honest. But yeah, it's, it's so well done that at a certain point, I was like, this is one of the, the largest filmmaking feats I've seen in a, in a long time. Which is incredible because it's a small production with only a budget of, I think it was reported, $25 million. What? Yeah. No. I was watching a uh, video, I think it was from Wired, the Daniels, uh, who are the creative force behind this. It's Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheibert. Scheinbert? Scheibert? They're talking about the production process and all the VFX for this film, most of it was done by five guys on a micro budget. And so not only does this film break filmmaking for me based on like creativity and narrative and all that good uh, buzzword jazz, but in terms of like what you can do on a micro budget, it is phenomenal. And I like specifically Daniel Kwan was talking about how a lot of the stuff they were shooting for verse jumping he he basically walked around with a handheld camera that was capable of 4K, and he was shooting all that stock himself, just like walking through cities and stuff like that in streets. And then that ended up in the film as the like when Evelyn is like flying like backwards through time space. Yeah, that's that's like the things they were able to get away with on a budget. And then with their five man VFX team, creating what to me feels like just as good, if not better, than you know the top of the line CGI stuff that we're getting out of you know, big budget blockbusters today. It is amazing. I'm just constantly finding new information about this film that is leaving me in awe. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, $25 million. <laughs> amazing. Incredible feat of... Everything down to the raccoon. Yeah, all practical lots puppets. Of pra- lots of practical. Yeah, they use the practical where they can, and then when they did use CGI... Hot dog fingers. For the... Uh, the effects it was it was great. So it's Daniel Scheinert. Scheinert. Or Skynert. Skeinert. I think it's Shine Shea. Like a Sha. At least that's how he introduced himself on the wired video. Shine Scheinert? Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan. Or Dan Kwan. Yeah. The Daniels. They go by Daniels. <laughs> right? As their that's like their uh Brangelina, yeah. You know? They are a creative duo that have been working together for a while. They made Swiss Army Man with Daniel Radcliffe, which was that, and uh, Paul Dano, that really weird film. I haven't seen it. You've seen it. Paul Dano's trapped on an island with Daniel Radcliffe's corpse, and it's just a fun and heartfelt, uh, absurdist romp mm-hmm. through. I think they're trying to like not only get back to civilization literally, but also metaphorically. Yeah. Really quirky and, and crazy stuff. And uh, this is only their second film working together. I think 
Scheinert made a film called, uh, directed it himself, called The Death of Dick Long. He reunited with Dan Kwan, and I think this film, they'd been throwing around the idea since Swiss Army Man, the concepts that became everything, everywhere, all at once. And here we are now, in 2022. It's a COVID film, so you can kind of feel that sometimes in the way that, like, there's only, like, mostly one location for the for the primary timeline in this film. But it never feels trapped no. and contained in, in a COVID way. You know, right. Like, the restraints upon it, and the filmmaking. Yeah. This duo, they make, like Gabe said, sort of strange, obscure, sort of life-affirming kind of content. I'm trying to think of a, a good way to explain it. It's like, to me, it's like Edgar Wright, if he were even quirkier and more about life, <laughs> more pro-life. Yeah, it's hard to make comparisons in my mind and use other filmmakers as a reference point because these guys are really off the wall and they try to do that. I read another article where they were talking about how they they weren't expecting it to resonate so well with everybody. Yeah. Like they, with Swiss Army Man, they're almost disappointed in themselves when it is such a resounding success because they want to push the envelope and they want to make things that make you uncomfortable or, you know, stuff like that, which I dig. And uh, mm-hmm. there was plenty of that in this film. Just, you know, there were instances of <laughs> using uh, butt plugs and uh, some BDSM like jokes, uh, stuff like that, where I could see, you know, some of my more, uh, what's the term, my family members who are like more, you know, conservative, you could say, would probably not be into those those kind of jokes. But the Daniels love to... Or the sucking of hot dog fingers. Yes. The yeah. bleeding of ketchup and mustard. Big time. That kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it seems like this film has has had a resounding success. Mm-hmm. And everybody is pretty much celebrating it, which is awesome, because it is very much deserved. Such an interesting partnership, too, between the Daniels. These guys are accompanied by a bunch of very good filmmakers. The cinematographer was Larkin Seipel. He shot uh, This Is America. That's interesting. Yeah, he shot the music video This Is America. That's that's something else I was going to say is the Daniels kind of have a, a large music video background, which kind of says a lot to the, their filmmaking style. But they're very creative and innovative because of that. He also shot Swiss Army Man, and he shot some stuff for Far From Home, Spider-Man. It was edited brilliantly by a man named Paul Rogers. Good on you, Paul. Like, the editing in this movie was... (laughs) It's insane. Unlike any other movie I've ever seen. He has edited a lot of stuff for them in the past, and then a bunch of other sort of random stuff that... Like the Eric Andre show? Yeah. That's pretty funny. I'd love to hear his thoughts specifically on working with the VFX guys because those two processes were so intertwined. They always are. But especially here. Casting by Sarah Finn. Production design by Jason Kisvarde. Art direction, Amelia Brooke. Set decoration, Kelsey Ephraim. All of these are at the top of their game, just FYI. Costume design was Shirley Kurata. There's a lot of kooky costumes. A lot of makeup people, a lot of art department people, second unit director, assistant directors. And then there was a crazy sound department. Because the sound was a huge part of this film. 
especially if you got in a good theater, it kind of is overwhelming at times, and that's kind of the point. There's a lot of climaxes and dips, and those are all accompanied by sound, and the people who did the score, which was Sun Lux, who's a band I've been listening to for a while. But Sun Lux did a great job, kind of along with the sound and the, the sound effects and stuff, kind of creating those swells and those those climactic points in the film. And it, again, it happens a lot. It's almost like there's a quick beat and a, and a rest and a pause, and then it swells again, and, then it, and it just keeps repeating that way. That's kind of their style, I would say. And then there's, there's a lot of other additional crew and departments and script people, etc. We should also say it was written by the Daniels. We didn't already. Oh, tours. Oh, tours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about the cast? Who starred in this film? led by Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn Wang. You might know her from Tomorrow Never Dies, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or more recently, Crazy Rich Asians and Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. He was in Shang-Chi. And then we have back for the first time in what seems like forever, Yu Kwan. Yeah. From, you know, his iconic child star performances as Data in the Goonies and Short Round in Temple of Doom. Yeah, I did a little bit of research on that, and he said that he never wanted to quit acting. He just couldn't get roles because as a Chinese-American actor, there just wasn't a lot of roles for him, so he felt as if he was kind of forced out of being able to act. Yeah. And then he started doing a bunch of stuff behind the camera, and he said he was content with that until he saw Crazy Rich Asians. And that movie inspired him to get back into acting. He said after he saw that movie, he asked someone to be his agent for acting again. And two weeks later, he got a call for this film. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. Because he, honestly, um, amongst the three incredible leads for this film, he was the one that blew me away the most. Yeah, I agree. It was incredible, and I'm so sad that we went 20 years without seeing Quan. But here's to hoping, moving forward, he can be... Man, it's, oh God, especially in those scenes that were like... The noir. Or he was, yeah, he was yeah. channeling Tony Lung. Yeah. And I was like, God, he's just, just as good. Yeah. We got to use him more. I agree. James Hong? Yeah. Uh, as Gong Gong. As Gong Gong. <laughs> he's the grandpa, the father to Michelle Yeo's character. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's just, he's like one of those, again, those actors that's always been around. Yeah, he's iconic. A Stephanie Sue played Joy, Michelle Yeoh's and, and Ki Hui Kwan's uh, daughter, and also, what's the, what's the word, Babushka? What's it, the name of the monster? Oh, Jobu Tabaki? Yeah, Jobu Tabaki. Yeah. She, and, and she, <laughs> yeah, she played, so she played their daughter in Jobu Tabaki. I'm so glad and they she's, cast her. And she's from... A bunch of stuff, but I the, I've seen her most recently in season four of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She plays Joel's uh, fiance. I think she was in Shang Chi too. Oh, is she? She has a credit, but I don't remember her. She's also from Nora from Queens. <laughs> that Daniels talked about how I think the studio wanted to push a bigger actress, but they saw Stephanie and they knew they had to have her in the mm-hmm. film. So mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah, she was great. It's crazy because in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, she plays someone that's a little bit, she seems a little bit older. And when I saw her in this film, I couldn't place her because she was playing kind of a much younger daughter type character. So her her composure and 
uh, Mrs. Maisel is a lot different than it was in this film. And then Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. As Deirdre, uh, Bo Beardra. Bo Beardra. Deirdre. And she went all out. <laughs> it was so good. It was, she, this was such a crazy role for her. I hope she had as much fun as it looked like she yeah, was having. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, and then Becky, who's Joy's um, love interest in the film, is played by Tally Medal. And then Jenny Slate's in this as well. And she's, she's only, <laughs> she's only accredited as Big Nose, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of, a few other people that had sort of like running roles in the film that no pun intended paralleled like the the multiverse so you saw like kind of the same person multiple times they just flash very quickly like rakakuni yeah rakakuni and is human but yeah that's basically the cast or like the the a-list cast that old that old guy's name was biff whiff <laughs> so how do we talk about this movie you know briefly talk about what it's about <laughs> <laughs> or what happened? Yeah. This is a life. It's a multiverse story. There you go. Free from destiny. I think the Daniels said they set out to make their own version of a superhero film. Not only what we show. But with people instead of superheroes. This is a life. Every Overarching plot is this is a first generation Chinese American story where they kind of set up this business and that's not really working out. Michelle Yeoh's kind of really jaded and she had higher aspirations for her life and is really unsure about her life and her marriage and her relationship with her daughter. And then she goes to do her taxes, file the taxes for the failing laundromat that they live above, which is interesting. All this stuff starts happening, and her husband's body keeps being taken over by a parallel universe version of her husband who can do martial arts and Alpha, jump, Alpha jump around. What? Alpha Waymond. Yeah. As the events unfold, basically we find out that the multiverse is at risk by Jobu Tabaki, who's a variant of her daughter, um, and she's kind of out to, we think, to get vengeance, and then it turns out she's out to try to find someone who is like her, and she's seeking out her mom. And then her mom, sort of out of love for her, kind of pushes herself to the edge to become like her, which is kind of this all-knowing being. Uh, it's the kind of person who knows everything, is everywhere and all at once. But Michelle Yeoh pushes herself past past the limits and becomes the same sort of sentient creature being. And then there's this very large emotional ending where all the relationships and all of the things that Michelle Yeoh did not like about her life sort of get buttoned up. And she comes to a resolve with one thing at a time or one person at a time. 
And the movie ends in this very sort of beautiful, cathartic way while doing a lot of beautiful things along the way. Again, like emotionally beautiful and sort of profound and unexpected, especially as an audience member walking into this thinking, oh, this is probably going to be a fun movie. The emotional beats and the way that those impact you are, it feels like they come out of nowhere, you know? Yeah, most of the second half was just like, on and off, ebb and flow, emotional beat. It was yeah. just, it kept hitting you, both with her husband and with her daughter. Yeah. It was relentless. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because, as we said, things were not great with her marriage and her relationship with her daughter. And then also with her dad, who is kind of in a wheelchair, and she comes to a resolution with him as well. Anyway, that's kind of, those are the beats of the film. But Michelle Yeoh... As Evelyn? Yeah. Evelyn starts channeling other versions of Evelyn in the multiverse, and some are master chefs that like know how to throw a knife. Other ones are more kooky that you know that have hot dog fingers. Other ones are uh, they know martial arts or um, what else? Well, she channel she she verse jumps haphazardly just to acquire any skill that could help her in the moment, and usually it's not even directly helpful. So sometimes, like, even she'll jump to the hot dog finger universe, and, and that's got no practical application, but it's just like she's Well, she requiring. gets out of the handcuffs that way. Well, she first jumps to it because she's trying to fight her daughter when she first encounters Jobu Tabaki, and she's just, like, flailing around. Like, it was, she was, she never <laughs> meant to jump. And I think most of the universes she jumped to, they were accidental jumps because the lights were usually yellow and not green because she didn't know how to actually do it pr- properly but she ended up acquiring all those skills like the what do you call the benihana chef what's that style of ikibanya 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 is that what it's called no i'm making up words now but yeah everything from kung fu which is where the matrix homage comes from and all the way through more specific <laughs> and random skills yeah and also the way that they acquire those skills or channel those other alternate versions of themselves is pretty funny. They have to do something uh, kind of zany or out of the ordinary to uh, hone in on that specific world or that multiverse world. And like such as something like eating chapstick or uh, singing or dancing, singing or dancing or doing like licking someone's face or something really weird professing your love for the person trying to attack you something statistically unlikely i think was the explanation yeah but also meaningful to that specific version of yourself in that world right yeah so yeah that's the film i mean in a very reductionist way that's the film but again i couldn't say enough good things about this movie I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately. We've been seeing a lot of good stuff. But this specific film is so frenetic and chaotic at times because it's so well made that at a certain point, I turned sort of my critical brain off and started just enjoying the ride because I had to, because there's there's honestly no way to keep up on how chaotic the editing is. And again, the sound intermixed with the editing and the story. To the point where I was able to just enjoy myself watching the film without really like criticizing it too hard uh, when it came to the editing. Because I, at a certain point, was just like, well, I think they got it. I think they edited this well. (laughs) 
you know? Mm-hmm. And, and normally when I watch a movie, my, my critical brain is just constantly running and it almost disconnects me and my emotional ability from the thing that I'm viewing. So I was able to just enjoy this and feel the, the moments. And so when the emotional beats and the emotional kind of reparations started occurring, I was really taken aback and really moved. Um, probably in the same way that you were, I'd never looked over cause good. I was a fucking mess, <laughs> <laughs> but this movie did a lot of things I've never actually seen before in a movie ever when it comes to dealing with, uh, emotional trauma or family of origin stuff, especially like when it, and it comes to being like post adolescent, like young adult and the feeling of rejecting love because you're just kind of embittered or angry, especially at your family, like, and, and, and where you just were, where you just came from and wanting to just walk away sort of embittered. And then I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but having a family member recognize that, that that's what you're doing and then go out of their way to try to reach you and repair sort of that bridge or those hurts. And I think I've never seen it done in such a, I've never seen a movie kind of capture that emotion in such a, both a simple and a complex way. Nuanced. Elegant. Yeah. And I thought that was just like one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a long time. So right at the end. But all the healing up to that too, because Michelle Yeoh to even get to the place where she could recognize this is what her daughter is doing. She's essentially, I might lose her forever if I don't reach out and do this now. And what's what's so interesting about that kind of love is it's so simple to accept, but I feel like we've all rejected that at certain points in our life. But it's the simple act of like a hug or something, like a handshake or it could be anything that a lot of us just feel maybe, oh, that's too awkward or too cringe or too, too meaningful. And I don't even want to go there because it would mean too much. And if I get let down, I'll get hurt. And so we protect ourselves in those ways. And and pain is the thing we're trying to avoid the most in life. So I don't want to get hurt. So it's like, how do I walk away from that? But the act is so simple to just come back from that. And I thought that was such a beautiful and profound thing. Like you said, like really nuanced and elegant because Oftentimes, it is just that simple. It's just like, hey, if we could just let go of the thing that's holding us back, we can become whole again. And this movie was all about that emotional beat over and over and over again. But yeah, so Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn, had to repair parts of herself and come to the realization that she was treating her husband badly. Uh, She had to stand up to her father because she had all this tremendous guilt from not listening to him when he uh, told her to do something when she was younger. And, you know, she had to get to a place where she was able to then reach out emotionally after she had a lot of her emotional wounds healed and I thought that was profound as well. Like this movie, it, it set that up so that all these things had to happen 
in the order that they had to happen for there to be healing between her and her daughter, which was sort of the actual plot of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this movie spoke to me personally as well in, in some subtly different ways. Both the characters of Waymond and Joy, uh, particularly. I mean, despite all the other themes, like we've mentioned that it's going on here from like generational trauma to prejudice and all that stuff, both of those characters had journeys that spoke to me in a powerful way, specifically Waymond's uh, approach to fighting. It sounds like I'm, that's know, his I name. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being racist I know you're or anything. <laughs> or being, uh, I'm not being a joker. His name's Waymond with a W. <laughs> uh, but yeah, his fight against the chaos of the world with kindness was really cool to see. And that's ultimately what brings his wife back from the brink of her um, being consumed by the bagel, uh, a.k.a. the dark side, a.k.a. the existential black hole of nihilism. Everything on a bagel. (laughs) Joe Butapaki is such a great character. I put everything on a bagel. <laughs> She's so crazy. Does she sing that song? Yeah, she. I mean, she does like a verse, at, at like twice at two points in the movie. She just starts singing. Sucked. It was really beautiful and touching to see because most people would consider that, as he says in the movie, to be weakness, but it's his choice to combat all that negative energy in the world with positivity and with love and with kindness. So That's how he fights. Yeah, and it's courageous in that way. But And also Joy specifically even was... Her story is where I was really getting torn up inside because it's all a story of it's depression and nihilism uh and she says throughout the film how she's come to this place because of her journey in this in this universe uh that nothing matters and she's completely burnt out and she's uh has this kind of blasé nonchalant twist where she's and it's funny because the approach in the film is that she's not trying to like destroy everything she just wants to destroy herself with her um black hole creation the bagel the everything bagel in this film and she, like you said, just wants her mom. She was curious if anyone could connect with her in that way and, and join her in that dark place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Evelyn was doing that until uh, Wayman pulled her back out of it. Um, stop laughing. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was his name. It's literally his name. It's <laughs> Wayman I, I didn't know that. I yeah. Wayman. Um, <laughs> did they do that on purpose? I don't know, man. <laughs> probably. They <laughs> probably did. Um. Yeah, and like you said, there's there's a really interesting back and forth at the end of the film where after Evelyn has established that she has to let her daughter go her own way, that there is that final act of not only her reaching out to pull her daughter back for that final moment of, of like that embrace, but her daughter reaches out as well at that moment out of the black hole because like it's like her one last uh, attempt at, at coming back to, to life um, and to hope and to all those her own last ditch effort against the fight against her, her depression and nihilism that is not just because of her generational trauma, but all, all of her own insecurities and stuff has brought her to this place. And I don't know, it was a really beautiful 
thing because at that moment you're like is this is this it for alpha joy aka jobu tabaki is she just gone to the bagel now is this it? but no there's that final act of uh reaching out and they they end up saving her and bringing her back so that was really beautiful yeah the nihilism aspect of the film was super fascinating because i think it's not only pertinent to the film but it, it's pretty culturally significant right now in this day and age i feel like a lot of people especially uh, the up-and-coming generations feel that weight of of nihilism. Yeah, for sure. And um, therefore, it's it's pretty culturally appropriate, relevant, relevant. And I thought that that was like a really. I that's why I kind of was thinking about Edgar Wright because this movie had a lot of quirk to it, just like Scott Pilgrim did. And when Scott Pilgrim came out, that was kind of the voice of a generation. I feel like this is also. A voice of the a generation yeah you know I, yeah i think you're absolutely right the generation z is there's like a a, bl- a black hole kind of in and of itself and i f- it is really sad because i mean not to like you know <laughs> get lost in this conversation but uh i i do think you're right and we've we've mentioned this before in different podcasts how like there is i think a a longing or an emptiness and not just because of technology and what it's done to our minds and to, and to our souls, um, younger people, but just like people trying to find their way and find their identity uh, in this world, and especially through the lens of, like you said, the first and second generation immigrants. And we've had so much amazing representation, not we as in you and me, but like the, those people have had so much amazing representation in the last few years that it really is incredible. Uh, inspiring, I think, to younger people from across the world that are living and growing up in this time mm-hmm. who are just like dying to find, like, you know, not just meaning and purpose, but to like find uh, human connection and, and mm-hmm. compassion and, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and encouragement, I think, which is something that Joy never had from her parents. Uh, because of her life choices and then because she was gay and all that stuff. So that was sort of the last thing that I wanted to touch on was I, I've heard uh, other Chinese Americans and, and other people from other Asian countries talk about how like on point this film was when sort of depicting like Asian families, specifically in this case, a Chinese family, but especially that, that gap between the generation, like, one of the people I was listening to talk about it said that they saw it like in an all like Asian theater or like the whole audience was Chinese or Asian. Yeah. And they all were laughing on a lot of the subtleties, probably stuff that you and I missed out on because we never, we didn't have, you know, the specific criticisms growing up from our mom or the mispronunciation of certain words and, and uh, you know, getting, getting the pronouns mixed up like that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so there was not only like a lot of creative force that came up with the story and executed it to the level that we're seeing it, but there was a lot of thought that went into the cultural heritage and the background that we're seeing within the confines of this Chinese American nuclear family. So I thought that that was really beautiful as well because it was done in such an artful and very grounded and realistic way at the same time. Which brings me to another point that this film did a really good job kept, like keeping the tone that it created and being able to transition between 
something extraordinarily funny and outlandish, like almost obscure, and then bring you right in along with itself to uh, make you feel something real. And so that the the ability to keep that tone and and shift between the different beats, the emotional beats, I thought was just honestly brilliant. This was top tier filmmaking. Yeah, that's why specifically that is why I would call it a masterpiece. To be honest, it is. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I try not to use that word often, even though I am, admittedly, you know, sensationalist at times. But <laughs> this film really, I think, is a masterpiece. It really is. And we we mentioned some of the influences too, but the Daniels have talked about in interviews um, how much they are fans of cinema, and we like we threw out the Matrix as one. The War Kaiwang, like influential yeah. Chinese and Hong Kong cinema of yeah. the latter 20th century. I like all the work of Tony Leung. Yeah. All and even things like anime. Like the Daniels are huge anime fans and they reference Satoshi Kon, for instance, and oh, really? a lot of the other masters. Uh, just to incorporate and blend all these genres in such a seamless way. Like you said, with all the absurdist bent and also to have it with such heart and soul mm-hmm. and identity as a film that it just bleeds passion and creativity. And it is inspiring to watch, I think for anybody. Totally. And I would recommend it to everybody, even the people who would maybe like not squirm at a butt plug joke. Yeah. Because it is an, it is, it's just an achievement in, it is an achievement. That's, that's (laughs) such a good way to put it. I couldn't have said it better myself, but I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you just said. So, yeah, I'm going to try to get some more people to watch it so it doesn't like, you know, I, it's a, a bit of a sensation, but I don't know. I haven't checked to see how it's doing at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it came late to a wide release, and I hope it stays around for a month or two because it wouldn't surprise me if they, you know, try to kick it off. Yeah. Um, but Sure. Word, I, yeah, yeah. Where I think you said word of mouth has been strong. Yeah, I mean, this to me... It reminds me of when I saw Napoleon Dynamite, and I was like, and everybody liked that movie. And every it just came to the the surface of social consciousness and just permeated and stayed there for a long time. I feel like this movie has the capacity to do the same. Uh, I don't know if it will, but I feel personally, I feel like it should, because like you said, you know, to beat a dead horse, this is master class filmmaking masterful filmmaking top tier top notch yeah i've never like very rarely i mean i see a lot of movies where i i kind of say to myself oh i could do that (laughs) this movie i the whole time after about after the first scene where they're all talking over each other and and but you know she's going downstairs and upstairs and there, and then joy shows up and there's like six, there's like three conversations happening at once. After the first scene, I was like, Oh, I, I, this is beyond me. Like (laughs) we're on another uh, level. This is, this is, this is something I couldn't do in my sleep. Yeah. It was such tension even before we got to the weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you already mentioned the score too, but what an incredible score by Sun Lux. Uh Like those, those musical cues where the title cards come in, or like at the very end, right before the credits roll, and they stretch the, yeah. the title card. I was like, "Oh my god, so cool!" <laughs> it's like I was getting goosebumps. Yeah, on and off. Yeah, between the you know bouts of me weeping violently in my chair. <laughs> you must have been weeping silently because 
I did not hear you. I was really trying to stifle it. I, w- I want to say one more thing because I almost forgot this. Um, <laughs> to, to speak for a moment to the theater experience, uh, I can't remember. Someone, I was reading someone talk about it, and they had a, another film they were comparing it to, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, I think it was something like Rocky Horror Picture Show. This mm. film is one of the reasons this film is really special is for the theater experience, and this is why I would, I would plead with people to go see it in theaters. Uh, is because this is because of the the tonal like shock and the whiplash in, in a good way of this movie. Everyone is like laughing together in this film and crying together because all the beats work so well. It is such an enjoyable experience to be there with other people. And our our theater, I think, when we saw it was only like maybe like. 20 30 percent capacity but even then i could hear and the second time i saw it it was the same mm. people around in different all these different demographics of people i think in my second theater it was like it was younger men in their 20s and 30s people that i wouldn't expect to really buy into uh, a film viewing experience because they're like you know trying to be cool for their guy friends everyone was enjoying <laughs> the experience and we were all laughing at the joke at the same like everything was working so well, yeah, and it was really special, uh, and I love that. When I when I go see movies like this, uh, I want everybody to be like on the same page and, and enjoying the film and laughing and crying together. You know, sure. Like for me, I enjoy like superhero films on opening nights for that reason. There are other films, you know, certain dramas where I think there's a different environment, but in in a theater like this, it was such a treat to be especially post-COVID, to be in a, in a group of people that were all enjoying the film in that way. Yeah. yeah. That's why I love going to the, to the theater. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, this movie is worth your time and your money. Yes. So... Two times. <laughs> go check it out, please. Yeah. Yeah. Happy 150th anniversary, Gabe. Cold Popcast. Yeah. And to you. <laughs> we, we don't have much to celebrate with here, but... We didn't. Even, Gabe didn't even know that was happening today. Well, it's because we're there. We're like seven episodes backed up, aren't we? So, at this point in time, I think we're on like 144 or something. I I just decided to make this our 150th. So well, there you go. Yeah. Hopefully, it will come out before this movie is out of theaters. <laughs> Catch it on VOD. Watch it with the f- most of the family. <laughs> Maybe not your six-year-old. Yeah. No, maybe even that. You know, it'll what? be a good. It'll be a good chance to broach it'll some be... heavy-handed or insane topics with your what is children. He, what is he jumping on without his pants, Daddy? What? Why is that one guy tied up and being spanked? Did he do something wrong? It's so funny because when we saw those trophies, instantly I turned to you and I said, "Those are butt plugs." They for sure were. Chekhov's butt plug in play. What a great payoff! That's why they get. It was me and the guy in front of me both recognized it. And like <laughs> chuckled. They're like, "What the hell are those?" I think most people were in the know. You know, even if they weren't in. You know. <laughs>